0: We're continuing our series in the beginning. We're going to be reading the entirety of Genesis chapter 16, a fascinating passage this morning, That's this evening. So let's read. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an, a, a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abr- Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, "May the wrong done to me be on you." I gave my servant into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. All right, fascinating. Well, there's this uh, reform in the reform tradition. I mean, we're getting a bit of a reform day today, it seems. But um, this Latin phrase cropped up and it defined the Christian life. And it was this phrase, "corum Deo, "corum Deo, something that, If you can remember what it means, you want to write it It'd make a good tattoo, actually. Uh, It means before the face of God. And this phrase was adopted by the early reformers who were faced with the hard work of bringing reform to the Roman Catholic Church at the time and reinstating the gospel within all the churches. And the point of Coram Deo is to live with the realization that everything that we do is before the face of God. Everything is before the face of God. There is no action or thought or deed that is done outside of His sight. You are basically doing everything in His presence. Now, some of us will have different images come to mind about that. When we recognize that everything is done before the face of God, when I was in high school, my old principal, uh, to try to deter all us um, rebellious teens from driving fast and being silly on the road, he'd say, imagine me sitting in the car next to you to try to stop us from doing stuff. And a lot of people, when they hear the word Coram Deo, that's exactly what they think of. They're imagining God standing above them with his arms folded, looking down at them, angry at almost anything they do because they never add up, they never please him, they never do what he wants. For others of us, God is standing, smiling and waving and encouraging us on, never worried for a second about anything we do. Still, some others may think God is disinterested. He's standing there checking his nails, looking around him, trying to find anything else that's interesting going on. However you react to the phrase, Coram Deo, this realization that everything you do is within the very presence of God tells you a lot about how you view your relationship with God. What that phrase elicits from you tells you a lot about how you view God. God. And there was no one who embodied this phrase more than Jesus. Jesus embodied this phrase, Coram Deo. He lived his entire life within the will of the Father. When you read Jesus, you know that he was solely and only concerned with the will of the Father. He fully recognized that everything he did was conducted before the very face of God. And for Jesus, that was the highest and best way to live, the best way to walk, the best way to do anything. And according to R.C. Sproul, the essence of Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And that is a good definition. And why are we talking about this? That Cody, I don't see Coram Deo in the text right here. It'll, It'll make sense in a bit. Abram's gotten himself into quite a pickle, hasn't he? You might start noticing this theme with Abram's life. Every time something seems to be going well, something then seems to go badly. You you start to notice this theme. Uh, One week we come in and we're super encouraged by Abram and his walk with God and his obedience and how he's a man of faith. And we're like, we need to be like this guy. We need to learn from this guy. We need to find out what he's doing right. And then other times, he seems to be getting everything wrong. It's like, what are you doing, man? It It was going so well. And now look where we are. One man is fighting battles, trusting in God, taking huge risks, going on long perilous journeys for his uh, faith in God. And on the other hand, he's pimping out his wife in Egypt. He's giving away God's promised land, uh, some of the promised land to Lot. And now he's collaborating with his wife on how to produce an heir. And we've got to remember, Abram's a baby disciple. He's still very young in his faith it seems he, he's old he's an old guy we get we get that but he's young in his walk with God he doesn't realize quite yet that his whole life is lived before the face of God Abram's just come off this amazing covenant that God had made with him he fully accepted this reality that God would provide an heir for him we we recognize that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness his own flesh and blood will inherit everything so Abram's got a job to do now He's got to raise up for himself an heir. He's got to go out and do what needs to be done. And at this point, Sarai seems to think this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And we've got to to have some sympathy for her, only a little bit, because the cultural pressure that Sarai has faced her entire life to conceive would have been overwhelming and constant for her entire life. She would have been pressured as the woman of this huge household to produce an heir for her husband and for the whole whole life she has not been able to do it. And here comes Abram after this amazing experience with God saying, it's going to happen honey, we're going to have a child. And she's thinking, oh, I don't don't know what she's thinking, the text doesn't say us, but maybe she's thinking not this again. She's had year after year of heartache thinking about this, so she decides let's take the matter into our own hands. Let's fulfill the promises of God. And she had this Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Very interesting. She's an Egyptian. How did she end up in Abram's entourage? How did she end up hanging out with all of Abram's people? Well, we remember that when Abram went down to Egypt, how did he leave Egypt? Wealthy with a lot of stuff, a lot of goods, a lot of livestock and a lot of people. And Hagar would have been acquired at this period of time. And we see that Abram's sinful journey down into Egypt has now come back to bite him. It's gonna get him into a lot of trouble. And Sarai says in verse two, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now this is a bit weird, but for her culture, this is not weird. If the woman of the household, the leader of the household, the kind of queen, I guess, of her, uh, in her standing, if she couldn't bear, she couldn't conceive, then what would happen was that she would take a servant and that servant would conceive on her behalf and then she would have a child and the child would be considered um, the mistress's child, the, uh, the queen's child. But listen to how she starts. She says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Seems she's blaming God for her situation. Already, you can see that she's quite bitter about it. She's trying to find a solution to a problem that God does not ask her to find a solution for. God promised an heir and he was going to establish the birth of a son. And yet Sarai decides to take the initiative. She doesn't trust that her situation will change. It makes sense. In a sense, she is in a pretty hopeless situation. The only obedient option is to continue trying for kids and and to wait for the promise of God to come. But she does not choose that option. She looks outside of the will of God and decides to do something a little bit dodgy. She offers her servant to Abram. And then we see this uh, this verse, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. We've heard this before, haven't we? This phrase has shown up before. There's a parallel passage in Genesis 3.17 in the curse on Adam where it says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Adam listened to Eve and Abram is just like his descendant from very long ago and he abdicates his leadership, he defers to his wife, he abandons his role as the leader of this tribe and allows Sarai to make some morally suspect decisions for the good of everyone else. And we need to be very careful what voices we listen to, even if they come from someone very close and very dear and someone we respect. The most convincing and persuasive voices are, not, are often not those haters, the harsh critics out there in the world, but people that you love and respect. The people that are closest to us. Fathers should be very careful at all times to ensure that the only voice that they are listening to is the voice of God. Because just as Satan used Eve to undermine Adam's leadership, so also can he use the voices of those near and dear to them. And so whoever you are, wherever you are placed, whose voice do we heed? Now, of course, there is a place for Christians that you love and respect and you know the word to heed their advice and listen to their counsel. But what do we do when their counsel contradicts the word of God? We throw it out doesn't matter what I say to you. I can come up here and I can say anything. If it is not from the scriptures, you have a duty to not believe anything I just said. If anything I say contradicts this word, you have a duty to follow the word of God and not my word. Jesus says, those who hear my voice, uh, uh, I don't want to misquote this, the the passage, but as a general rule, we follow the voice of Jesus and Jesus alone and we will not follow any other voice. God is supreme. And living before the face of God, koram deo means living every situation, knowing that God is supreme and that His voice is the voice that rules, that He sees all things and knows all things and He loves us. And Abram did not heed the voice of God that he heard in Genesis 15. So verse 3, So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, and now Abram is a polygamist. Up until now, in the book of Genesis, we've seen polygamy, marrying multiple wives. It's it's been in the book of Genesis, but up until this point, has been only a practice of men that were clearly against the design of God, men who had abandoned belief in God, men who were pagans. But what we see here is that. Uh, Abram is now going to enter into this practice of polygamy. Abram is going to take for himself another wife. We saw Lamech took multiple wives. Pharaoh had multiple wives. And now Abram gets to invite himself into this little exclusive club that I don't think any of us really want to be a part of. You've got to feel for Hagar because she's forced into this arrangement. We're not sure if she approved of it or desired of it, whether she thought it was a good idea or whether she really didn't want to have to do it. That doesn't show up in the text. All we hear is that she falls pregnant and conceives when Sarai couldn't. And now conflict breaks out. Hagar considers herself better than Sarai. She considers herself to be the superior wife now. She had succeeded where Sarai failed. And began to disrespect the lady of the household and jealousy and rage and conflict just erupt and abram's foolish decision immediately backfires he should not have done this verse five and sarai said to abram may the wrong done to me be on you I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. It's getting worse and worse. This is all Sarai's idea, but now Abram puts all the blame for it. She didn't mind bossing Abram around and telling him what to do when it suited her, but the moment it no longer suits her and backfires, she shifts the blame back onto Abram. Where have we heard that one before? Garden of Eden, everyone's blaming everyone. No one's taking responsibility. And his leadership, or more the lack of leadership, has caused this conflict to break out. Abram has come into this situation and now he's expected to put an end to it. She's so confident in her case that she invokes the name of the Lord. She thinks that if the Lord descended right there and then and judged between the two of them, he would find that Sarai is in the right. I don't actually think she thought that. I think she was using it as a way to manipulate her husband. I think she was trying to get Abram to do something. What does Abram do? He avoids it. He doesn't want to deal with it. He tells her, look, she's your servant. You know, you deal with it. No, Abram, she's your wife now. He doesn't seem to, you know, he just denigrates Hagar, uses her and then throws her back down into a lowly status of servant. She's not a servant anymore. She's his wife. And man, boy, oh boy, does Sarah take that and run with it. She deals with Hagar. All her jealousy and rage poured out on Hagar. And it says here, she dealt harshly with her. Now, the word for dealing harshly, I found fascinating. It's the same Hebrew word, this word anah, translated as afflicted in Genesis fifteen thirteen. Read this. This is God speaking to Abram. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. There will be servants there. And here's our word. And they will be afflicted for 400 years our word shows up again except the first time we see it is not Abram's descendants but Hagar the Egyptian this is very ironic Abram knows that his descendants are going to be treated terribly and they'll be treated terribly in Egypt of all places they will be enslaved and afflicted and here we have Hagar an Egyptian slave afflicted by Abram's household. You can see there's a little bit of irony here. They flicked her in the exact same way. It's the exact same word, the exact same treatment. And the treatment is so severe that Hagar flees into the wilderness. This is one of the lowest points that we see in the story of Abram. Now understand that the wilderness is no place to run. This is not a place you want to run to if you want to get away from someone unless you are absolutely desperate. And this highlights for us how poorly Sarai treated Hagar. Hagar is still pregnant and she flees into the wilderness, which is really where you go to die. All sorts of dangers lie there. The wrong sort of people can find her there. There are no police. There's no one that's going to investigate what happens to you if you're found out there by the wrong person. During this time in Israel, lions, bears, and wolves were prevalent and quite dangerous. And a pregnant woman would not fare much chance against these brutal animals. Food is hard to come by. Water is scarce. It's really, it's hard not to feel for Hagar. She didn't ask to be put in this situation. Like, yes, she's been a little bit arrogant towards her mistress, Sarai. Yeah, what she's done isn't good, but Abram's lack of leadership and Sarah's vindictiveness are not proportionate responses. It is not proportionate for, what, for the arrogance of Hagar. Abram and Sarai should have known that God sees that all of their behavior is before the face of God. Sarai even invokes the name of God as if she can get away with it. Well, we know who God is. And he sees, because everything is done before his face. He sees all of this, and he cares about it. Read this, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the first time we see the angel of the Lord show up in the book of Genesis. And this angel is gonna play a massive role throughout the rest of the book. And I'm gonna deal with the angel of the Lord more when we get to him later in this book. But for now, we see this um, angel is sent to meet Hagar and to deliver to her a message. And God has seen her affliction. And God will act. God does do something. Just as God uh, will see the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt much later, it's the same phrase we see here, so does he now see the affliction on Hagar. And he cares about Hagar, even though she's an Egyptian. Even though she's not one of her chosen people, it shows that God cares about all people and that God will act on behalf of all people. And the angel finds her by this spring of water in the wilderness and he begins to question her. And she tells him that she's fleeing from Sarai. And the angel tells her, return to your mistress. But not without telling her something very important. The son she carries in her womb is a son of Abram. Her son is not the chosen son that God had promised Abram. But he was indeed a son of Abram and as such would be blessed as well. Verse 11, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. We see what kind of man that Ishmael is going to grow up to become. God kind of shows Hagar the future, and he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. What a phrase! I had to do a bit of learning, to, uh, reading to kind of learn what that meant. Uh, I, I kind of know that donkeys are fairly stubborn animals. Well, a wild donkey is a particularly stubborn animal, and it's a destructive teacher, uh, creature that couldn't be tamed. If you saw a donkey out in the wilderness, you know why it ended up in the wilderness, because its owners were like, I can't do anything with this animal. Off you go, mate. Go have, go have a go out there in the wilderness. It was likely that this animal was so destructive that it, it'll tear up your camp, it won't do any work for you, it'll eat all your food, or pillage your stores. And it says here that his hand will be against everyone's and everyone's hand against him. And Ishmael was going to live with a considerable amount of conflict. He'll always be fighting others and everyone will always be fighting him. He's always, he's got some beef with the world. We of course know Ishmael. To be the father of many of Israel's future enemies but largely he's considered to be the father of the Arabic peoples who live in the Middle East and I don't know if this is for certain this is just my thoughts this isn't the word of God but it seems that this prophecy has been proven true for all of time since this moment because the Middle East has always had a turbulent and fiery history even today it's amazing Perhaps this is the case. Don't want to push it too far. But what is fascinating about all this is that Hagar is the only one who recognizes God's sovereignty and might in all of this. Where is Abram? Where is Sarai? Why aren't they recognizing anything? What is going on there? They're not, it's Hagar, the Egyptian servant. It says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar is the only one in this story that recognizes that God sees, that God knows. She is the only one who really understands what the phrase koram deo means. Well, she would never have heard the phrase, but the essence of the phrase, of course. Abram wasn't concerned about whose voice he listened to. Sarai seemed to think that God didn't see, or that God wasn't going to get involved. And Hagar learns in one of the most beautiful ways possible what it means to have God see and hear. And God takes care of this Egyptian slave. And like Abram and Sarai, almost all of our problems stem from the fact that we forget or deliberately pretend that God doesn't see. People who don't think God sees always seem to use Uh, their their, their freedom and their power in self-serving and abusive ways. Rulers who don't think God sees will tax their citizens into poverty and economic dependence and use their money to fuel their wicked desires. Rulers who think that God won't see will be tyrants and tell people what to do. Fathers who don't think God sees abdicate their leadership and abandon their posts, allowing the world to disciple their children and seek first their own comfort over the kingdom of God. Mothers who don't think God sees attempt to micromanage the household and dominate their husband's lives. They gossip and slander as if God can't see through it. Pastors who don't think God sees and don't fear God will fleece the flock and abuse the sheep and attempt to get status and riches and wealth off the church, never thinking that God will cleanse his own household. And if you only care what your walk with God looks like when other people are watching, I've got some news for you. You are not walking with God. You are performing for the crowd. When you understand Coram Deo, that God sees and hears, you recognize that everything is before the face of God Well, you can pick these people who live like that because they have integrity. There's integrity there. There's dignity there. They're the same person behind closed doors. The whole of their life has dignity, whether or not it's out in the open or whether or not you catch them at a bad moment. If you follow God when people are watching, but the moment you walk out of the assembly, you walk out of church, your behavior changes, well, you don't recognize the basics of Christianity. These things are not important. What's important is what people think about you. That is not Christianity. A Christian like this is marked by inconsistency, confusion, contradiction, and ultimately chaos. And you may know Christians like this, but often the Christians we know that are like this are ourselves. It honestly doesn't matter whether you impress the Christians sitting around you right now. Honestly, it just does not matter what they think about you. It doesn't matter whether you impress me. What I think about you, you may think for some reason my opinion matters because I'm standing up here. It doesn't. God sees through all the veneer. Maybe Abram and Sarai thought that God didn't see. But God is a God who does see, and He did. And He sent His angel to comfort and care for Hagar, and at least she had some level of integrity. And this Egyptian slave had a better idea of who God is than our boy here, Abram. He's still got a lot of maturing left to do. But what about you? I've heard stories, my times in Sydney, my times up here, of godly pastors who you'd think you'd imagine would make great husbands, great fathers turn out to be disasters behind closed doors. It honestly doesn't matter who you are whether you have a position of authority over the people of God or whether you're a lowly child. Have you really learned the lesson of living your life before the face of God? For the righteous, the presence of God in your life is a comfort. And like Hagar, you will say, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The presence of God will be the thing that just brings you great joy. But for others, it's a nightmare. The presence of God is a nightmare, something that you'd rather not think about. For those who are unsure whether or not you know Christ, the stuff we are talking about is only scary if you continue rejecting the one who has died for you. It is only bad news if you continue rejecting Jesus. Living before the face of God is the best thing anyone can do, it is the greatest joy and peace living before God, knowing Him who looks after us, for the periods of time where I'm living before the face of God has always been the best times in my entire life. And the periods of time where I put on a show and I perform for people and then behind closed doors I turn into someone else have been the times of deepest anxiety and depression and feeling like, where is God? And God hasn't gone anywhere. I've wandered. So whoever you are, you don't need to impress me, you don't need to... Im- anyone else here who cares what anyone here thinks this is between you and God you've got to do business with God how can you live your life Coram Deo before the face of God let's pray father I don't know how any of us have reacted to this or how Coram Deo comes across Some of us may be scared of that phrase. Others may be feeling a bit beaten up by that phrase. Some others may just be full of joy, knowing that you see and that you care for us. But Lord, we want to be a church that lives Coram Deo, who love one another, but listen to one voice and one voice alone, that of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Lord, it's confronting when we see men of faith like Abram and Sarai just get it so wrong and make such a bad decision, one that will haunt them for a long time. And Lord, we've made many bad decisions that haunt us even still. But Lord, we know that today is the day when we can right this ship and we can begin to live Coram Deo and we can live lives of integrity and we can think about who we are behind closed doors and see whether or not it lines up with who we are in public. And so, Lord, I just plead, I beg, help us to see your presence and to see your face and to know that you are good and that you love us and that you see. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.